but today I will be reading from Luke 1, verses 46 through 56. You can follow along on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is God's word. Well, good morning, Reality Church. It is wonderful to be with you today and to have the opportunity to open God's word together. And what a joy to hear the scriptures read as well. I want to begin by asking you a question. How did God come into your life? How did God first come into the horizon of your life? So neither of my parents were born into Christian families. My father was born during the war in Germany. And after the war, where they lived just outside of Berlin, was occupied by the Russians. And my grandfather was a brilliant scientist and he realised that all the scientists were being moved to Siberia and he thought, I don't want to live in Siberia. And so he made contact with um, the British and knew enough to um, be able to escape. A small plane was going to be sent on a particular day to a particular sort of patch of grass And on the day of the escape, my father, his sister, my grandparents had to get up, get dressed, leave the house, shut the front door, leave everything they owned and everyone they knew, walk out as if they were just kind of going for a family outing and get onto this plane. And in 1948, that plane landed at RAF North Holt in London, about 20 minutes from where I now live. They arrived in Britain only in what they were standing up in, just their clothes. My um, grandfather was a brilliant scientist and um, a very committed atheist. And he was so committed to atheism that he forbade the word God in the house. And he forbade anyone bringing a Bible into the house. So my father grew up in Britain. Um, He went on to become an academic himself. And after he'd done his initial research and his first couple of university posts, he got posted to, well, he got a job in Australia. And um, he was lecturing the University of New South Wales, living in Sydney with a really fantastic wife, lovely house, and two, quite frankly, amazing children. And they lived near the beach, and he had the dream job, intellectually fulfilling. He had opportunities in the media. They were comfortably well off. Um, He had long sabbaticals where he could come back to Europe and spend a year every three years just doing research. He had everything he dreamed of. 
there was one question that kept occurring to him that made him worried. And the question was, when I get to 65 and I retire, and I look back on my life, will this, what I'm experiencing now, will it be enough? He felt worried by that question. And then two things happened. One, a friend, a colleague at the university invited him to come at lunchtime to an event, a, a talk that was happening, a sort of speech that was happening with like, you just eat your lunch and listen to the speaker. And my father didn't realize it was gonna be like a Christian speaking. So showed up to this lunch and was quite surprised to hear the speaker, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, to hear the speaker give a talk about the Christian faith and evidence for the Christian faith. And the speaker said one thing that my father really, really remembered and it struck him. He said, the only reason you should be a Christian is because it's true. My dad thought that is a category mistake. This guy is putting two things together that do not belong together. Religion and truth and evidence. You know, truth and evidence are about reality and fact. Religion is about fantasy, wish fulfillment, family preference and tradition and maybe a bit of superstition thrown in. But it, it struck him and he remembered it. Then a few weeks later, he was marking some exam papers in his study at home, marking some papers, and my sister and I were asleep, my mother was asleep. <clears throat> and while he was there, he had an amazing vision and Jesus appeared to him and his whole life flashed before him. And at the end of this vision, he saw Christ on the cross and he realized that he was being offered forgiveness. And so he thought, I better pray, but I don't know how to. So he knelt down and he said to, to God, I don't know how to pray, give me, give me the words. And these are the words that came. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So that's what he said to Jesus. He was quite astonished a few weeks later after he'd gone to a shop to buy a Bible to read those words in Mark's gospel. <laughs> So that night, he went in and woke my mother up and said, Jane, the most amazing thing has happened. I've become a Christian. And my mum was less than excited about this prospect. Let's put it that way. She was definitely not into God at all. She'd had what she described as a vaccination. You know, you give, your, give someone a little bit of the poison and then they're immune for life. So she'd gone to kind of traditional church, chapel type things at school and it put her off forever. So one day my father thought, how could I meet other people who know Jesus like I do? And he'd gone and bought this Bible. He thought, where would I find them? I mean, and then he thought, maybe church. Maybe that is what that is. So he said to my mum, listen, I'm too embarrassed to go on my own. Please, will you come with me? And my mother said, she thought to herself, now I know my husband is intelligent, I know how I can cure him of Christianity. So she said, okay, I'll come to church with you on one condition. I'll only come if it's Anglican, thinking once he's experienced that, he'll be cured for life. He'll be absolutely fine. 
So they showed up at their local Anglican church in Sydney, which just so happened to be an absolutely sort of Bible-believing church. And my father was kind of moved to tears and convicted in the 40-minute sermon. And my mother was absolutely furious. I mean, hopping mad with rage about all sorts of things that were said. About six months later, after a long intellectual struggle, um, she became a Christian as well. That's how God came onto the horizon of our family's life. I saw my parents absolutely transformed by a living God. The passage we heard read is a speech by a young woman who's a kind of icon of the West, an icon of Western civilization and art but somebody who's quite remote, actually, to our lived experience, including as Christians, especially if we're in what would be called the Protestant tradition. People are a bit afraid of Mary. Let's not mention her in case we end up worshipping her. How did Mary first encounter God? Well, a few verses before what we heard read we first meet Mary as a young, unmarried teenager. Now think about how the cultural icon of Mary in our imaginations relates to that. For lots of us, Mary is a sort of otherworldly figure with a faint glimmer of a smile and a cherubic baby on her hip, always dressed in blue. Captured forever in a moment in her life that was an important moment, but it was one moment in a long life lived held up by some as the unattainable ideal of purity, held up by others as the sort of perfect mother, completely unattainable for for women. But Mary is a distant figure in our busy lives and in this technological age. Even in our retelling of the events of the Christmas story. I've got bad news for you guys. Christmas is coming. I'm not ready, are you? We've got, we've got not long to get the, get, get the preparations in order. But in the build-up to Christmas, we often retell the story, don't we? And in Britain, where you can probably tell from my accent, I live, um, it, we, even in school, we, we reenact. We call it a nativity play. And young children, you know, you put a tea towel on your head and you're a shepherd and someone else is Joseph, someone's Mary. And the tableau is recreated and it's kind of really cute. I once played Mary in the school play um, for, for my school and for the entire hour-long production, I did not utter a word. I was mute. That sums it up. Mary is a silent figure. Yet, Mary in Luke's gospel is described as a woman who exercised choice questioned things, reflected, responded, spoke up, and demonstrated great faith. Mary had a voice, and Mary was anointed. Now, I can remember exactly where I was when I was first truly struck by what Mary had to say. My working, my professional life, I'm a, I'm a theologian, and um, I've traveled a lot and I give kind of lectures and speeches about the Christian faith. 
often in contexts where the majority of people are not believers, and then answer people's questions. That's what I've done for over two decades. And um, in the last four or five years, another, another part of my work that has begun to become important is um, working in advocacy for people who've experienced sexual abuse, including in religious contexts. So um, scroll back three years and I was supporting a woman who had been sexually abused as a child and she'd gone to the police as, a, as an adult three decades after the abuse had happened and actually really amazingly um, that what we call the Crown Prosecution Service, I guess you, uh, anyway, the state, the government, chose to take on the case there was going to be a criminal trial. So the perpetrator um, was a high-profile, very powerful man, and now there was this case, this trial happening. So I was there to support this woman, and various people were giving evidence. And it was day two of the trial, and I was sitting in the public gallery, listening in this criminal crown court in a big city in Britain. And it was utterly devastating and traumatic, horrific. And I was asking God, as I was sitting there, where are you, God? Please help. Please let there be justice. At the end of the day, we were feeling very discouraged and um, I went into, I thought, I really want to pray and there's a beautiful cathedral in that city and I thought, I'm just going to go and sit in the cathedral and seek the face of God. So I went and sat in the cathedral and it was the, it was the evening and, you know, I'm just sort of sitting there and then a service is beginning. I'm not really there for the service, I'm just sort of there to be in that beauty and to pray but the service begins and they hand out sheets and so I've got a sheet and the choir get up to sing and as the choir is singing this beautiful choral music I kind of look at the sheet and read the words they're singing and they're singing Mary's Magnificat and they sing the line he hath brought the mighty down from their thrones he will exalt them of low degree. And in that moment, God spoke to me so powerfully. That is what Mary believed Jesus Christ had come to do. That is a vision of justice and goodness in a dark world. I realized that I'd been a Christian for decades, but I totally failed to listen to Mary's voice. So we're going to explore together under the theme of what does anointing, what does God anointing people actually look like and mean? And we're going to do it through the lens of Mary's life and what that might mean for us today. And I just want to say, if you're male here today, please don't be put off by the fact that Mary is female. You know, lots of us as Christian female followers of Jesus you know, we love to learn from the great male heroes of the faith and we can each learn, you know, from, from Mary or Abraham or Isaac. And today we're going to be considering this question of, of what anointing looks like through that lens of Mary. But it's for all of us, whether we're male or female. So the first thing I want to share is that Mary... Uh, 
in her life, anointing looks like fulfillment of prophecy. Anointing and prophecy go together in the scriptures. Now, Mary was a Jewish woman, and that meant she would have known at least some of the Old Testament. And she might have known the words of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 7, verse 14, written a few hundred years before her life, where Isaiah writes this. He says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will call him Emmanuel. So it's been prophesied long ago in the history of her people that God, who brought the space-time continuum into existence, God who is behind the cosmos, God who is the, the creator of the universe, God who is the glory, the ruler of her people, Israel, that one day that God is going to enter our world. Emmanuel, God is going to actually be with us. And the way he's going to do that is he's going to be born of a woman. And the sign that this unique situation is happening, that God is being born to be Emmanuel with us, the sign will be a virgin will conceive. Someone who's never had sex before, miraculously, will bring forth a child. Mary may well have known those words of prophecy from Isaiah, but she would have certainly known the words of the book of Genesis, chapter 3 and verse 15, where her foremother Eve had been promised in the scriptures that one day her seed, the seed of the woman, would bruise the serpent's head. The seed of a woman would have the power to utterly crush evil in this world. Now that's extraordinary in the ancient world, but it's actually extraordinary in our time as well, isn't it? If you think about it, in many of our cultures, when people get married, the, the wife takes the husband's name. That's what I did. I have three sons. They have their father's surname. You know, we, we kind of understand families often in that way. And so certainly, if that's true in our time, that was really, really true in the ancient world. So it's an extraordinary thing to say there will be a seed of a woman. There won't be a biological male involved. This is going to be something miraculous. And through a woman will be born into this world one who will have the power to utterly crush and defeat evil. Mary's anointing is in fulfillment of prophecy and fulfillment of scripture. So as we think about what it means to live in the anointing of the Holy Spirit today, the same is true for us. It is never in contradiction with scripture. There is a fulfillment piece of God's word, God's promises unfolding. From the earliest scripture, the promise is that one day a child will be born who will be God with us. So an ordinary young woman is chosen to play this significant and breakthrough role in the redemption of the world. And by positioning this woman, Mary, in this way, the New Testament is unlike other documents of the era. We're being invited into a story 
that tells us what kind of person can be a gospel witness. What kind of person can be a teacher of theology? This woman, a humble woman who exercises humble faith, it's no mistake that she gets to be a part of it all. So firstly, anointing and prophecy go together. Secondly, we see that Mary understood reality and she was prepared to pay a cost. Consider for a moment what life was like for a young woman living in an insignificant district of an occupied country under the control of the most powerful empire the world had ever known. And then consider another layer of oppression, the layer of patriarchy, which was that a woman's voice in that era meant very little. In fact, her testimony did not have the same validity as the testimony of a male in a court of law. That was Mary's context. I don't know how much you guys are following um, the conflict, the war in Ukraine, but in Britain where I live, um, one of the things the church has really kind of advocated for was um, opening our borders to welcome immigrants and refugees from Ukraine, people escaping war. And there was a, a campaign and many people in churches welcomed refugees to come and live in their homes. And my husband and I had the privilege of welcoming two Ukrainian women to come and live at our farm for a year. And these two women are amazing. The oldest was in her 80s and she came with her daughter in her 60s. The Russians came and occupied where they were living, destroyed their business. All sorts of horrific things happened in their community. Every man in their family, from oldest to youngest, was at the front line fighting. So brothers, sons, nephews, husbands, all, all at the front line. And they had to pay people, traffickers, to get to the Polish border. And then they were able to get a Red Cross flight to Britain. To look into the face of that older lady was just profoundly moving to me to spend time with her, to hear her story. That sort of experience is who Mary was. She was living under the, the power of an occupier. That's her context. So in that context, a glorious angel called Gabriel appears to her and says, Mary, you are highly favoured. How do you think she felt? I'm not feeling really very highly favoured at the moment. I'm living under occupation. I'm living in this really insignificant district of my own country. I'm living under all these layers of oppression. What on earth do you mean that I'm favoured? I want to ask you guys a question today. Have you and I as followers of Jesus, begun to equate the favour of God with the American dream? Or for me, the British dream? Have we equated what our culture says success and happiness must be 
If we equated that with the favour of God. And so if we're walking through a valley of lament and despair, we think, I can't be in God's favour. If we're experiencing any kind of layer of oppression or difficulty or struggle or darkness or agony or trauma, we struggle to, to, to see or believe in the favour of God. So this word to this woman tells us that God's favour can be upon us, can be operating in our lives, including when we're suffering, including when we are struggling. Mary, you're highly favoured, says Gabriel. Then he's got more news for her. You're, you're super favoured, Mary. And by the way, you're going to have a baby. Surprise! <laughs> now, not only are you going to be living under the occupier, not only are you living in a context where your voice is really, you know, worth nothing, now you're also going to be an unmarried teenage pregnant lady. Good luck. <laughs> Does that sound like favour? Mary is told she will miraculously have a child who will be the son of the Most High, who will reign on David's throne and whose kingdom will never end. Mary hears that word and she experiences that as the favour of God in her context. That's hugely challenging, isn't it? There's no disconnection from reality in the Bible. There's no sense of, you know, we're in the Bible now, so clearly, obviously, um, you know, if you say I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. I just accept it. Mary questions. So she says to, the, to, to Gabriel, how can this be since I am a virgin? In other words, she understands the birds and the bees. She knows where babies come from. <laughs> so she questions. She's living in reality in our world. She's living in her real context of struggle and pain and difficulty and where the law of gravity applies, where science is the same as it is today where babies don't just appear out of nowhere. She's living in that world. And in that world, when she hears this message, the text says she was troubled and afraid. She knows there's going to be a cost. She says, how can this be since I'm a virgin? The cost is going to be real. She knows what it will mean to be an unmarried mother in her culture. She knows potentially the cost will be the relationship with the person she loves and is betrothed to. But she responds, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Utterly outstanding faith not disconnected from reality. I love that that's your church's name, by the way. You know, sometimes we meet Christians who are just so in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly, 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 heavenlies that they're no earthly good. And we kind of think, what is going on with you? I mean, it's sort of amazing, but it's not connected to reality. 
And what we see here in the life of Mary is that an anointing from God, the favour of God comes into our world of pain and darkness and tears and sorrow and struggle and difficulty. Mary's head is not in the skies. Her reply shows that she does believe that what has been said will come to pass and she accepts it knowing there will be a cost. There's a cost to anointing, brothers and sisters. Are we prepared to be those who pay a cost? Thirdly, Mary used her voice as a witness. We're going to think next about this phrase that began our reading, a seemingly insignificant phrase in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 46, and Mary said. And Mary said. Luke has already been careful to include Mary's detailed account of her experiences and observations in his gospel. Scholars tell us that Mary is the key underlying source for the gospel of Luke. And in the birth narrative accounts that he has all the details about the shepherds and the cloths and all the aspects of the, of the story there that she had treasured in her heart that she's passed on to Luke, we've got her eyewitness testimony drawn on in that broader account. But here, in chapter 1 from verse 46 onwards, we don't just have her testimony in general terms reported by somebody else. We have her direct speech. We have her words. Now that is amazing, just on purely historical and literary terms. To have the recorded speech of a first century individual is really interesting and fascinating and wonderful. To have the recorded speech of a first century woman makes this incendiary. It makes this document unique in its era. Mary's voice matters. She's a witness and then the words of the Magnificat that follow form the longest speech of any woman in the New Testament. And they form, go on to form the basis for Christian ethical teaching. Now there are philosophy departments in the greatest universities in the world of Christian ethics, drawing on the ethical teaching that flows from this teenager as she begins, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. The teenage Mary is full of the Holy Spirit and the words of the Magnificat pour out of her. They are words of witness. They are speech that point to Jesus. They're words that declare what she believes Jesus is coming to this world to do. Mary famously um, in, in her one-liner at the wedding at Cana in John, in John chapter two, verse five, her recorded speech is elsewhere, one line. Remember, the wedding, there's a wedding, the wine's run out, people are running around very, very worried and Mary just says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She points to Jesus and says, do whatever he tells you. Now the anointing in Mary's life is evidenced in her witness. The very fact of the Magnificat tells us it was morally possible 
for a woman to use her words in this way, in this gift of prophecy and ethics and praise that flows out from her. But she's always pointing to Jesus with defiant hope about what Jesus has come into this dark world to do. And so as we long for anointing in the Christian life, we can look at Mary and we can see that one of the hallmarks of anointing is witness. That was true of Mary. Is it true of you? Brothers and sisters, oh, that the Holy Spirit would fall on us, his people. That he would anoint us and unlock that power of speech in our lives, that we would be witnesses, that we would speak of Jesus. A few years ago, I was preaching in an uh, Asian city, not a majority Muslim country, and it was a, a particular gathering. On the Sunday, I'd been asked to speak at a church that met in a hotel, and it was run by business people for business people. And they'd invited, it was a very super swanky hotel, quite unlikely venue for a church, but it was amazing context and loads of business people were coming to know Jesus there. And they'd asked me to do a real kind of gospel come to Jesus message on the text, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? And it was a guest service and they were like, everyone's bringing their friends, just really go for it, do an invitation at the end. So I was prepared for that and the service was about to begin. It was about two minutes before the service began and the pastor, just the leader, who was himself a, a businessman in the week and pastored at the weekend, he said, listen, Amy, the thing is, um, there might be a dignitary coming to church. Uh, we don't know if he's gonna come or not. I just wanna say, if he comes, don't change your message. So I said, okay, well, who is it? He said, don't worry about who it is, just don't change your message. So I said, well, I am worried now. Please just tell me who it is. So he said, well, um, it's the grand imam of this particular country and he's the leader of the world's fifth largest mosque. I said, I'm really worried now. I sort of secretly hoped he wouldn't come, which is a terrible thing to say because I was so nervous. But sure enough, in the first hymn, in walked a man with white flowing robes and his entourage and sat on the front row. So I had the opportunity to preach. Who do people say I am? Who do people say Jesus is? Who is Jesus? Who do you say I am? Afterwards, I had the opportunity to meet this gentleman and I said to him, can I ask you, sir, why, why are you here? He said, yeah, I'd love to tell you. A few months ago, my wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer. We knew she was gonna die. We tried everything, she'd had all the treatments. The Christians in my city, and I can tell you, I know that city, and that is a city where Christians are persecuted for their faith. He said, the Christians in my city heard what had happened they contacted me and they said can we come and lay hands on your wife and pray for her to be healed in Jesus name he said we were so desperate we thought we'll try anything so we said yes they came and prayed for her 
She was completely healed. Jesus healed my wife, he said. He said, I didn't really know what to make of that. But we know it was Jesus. A few weeks later, he said, I was on a plane going to a conference to speak. Onto the plane comes this guy. Now, this guy is a member of the church I was speaking at, a businessman who travels a lot for his work. And as a Christian in the workplace, one of the commitments he's made to Jesus is that when he gets onto a plane, he's going to try and have a conversation and share his faith with the person sitting next to him. So as he boarded the flight and looked at who was in the seat next to him, he felt less than encouraged. He thought, maybe I'm going to have a day off today. And the Holy Spirit prompted him, no, I want you to do it. So he began to share about Jesus with this man. Out pulls this story from this guy. So the businessman explains a bit more about Christ, gives him a New Testament, begins to encourage him to to consider what it might mean in his situation to follow Jesus. And then he says, next time you travel and go to a conference, I want to pay for you to route your flight through my city on a Sunday morning. I want you to come to my church where you can hear more. You can hear Jesus preached. You can meet more Christians. You can be prayed for again. That's how he wound up in church that Sunday. The power of witness. Oh, that each and every one of us in this house, in this community, would be anointed by Jesus. And that our mouths and our throats, our vocal cords would be unlocked in witness. And then finally and briefly, Mary being anointed looked like this. She read the great power discourses of her age and she defiantly believed that Jesus is the hope of humanity We live in a time when there is a lot of talk about oppression, intersectionality, layers of power abuse. Some of us have experienced power abuse in organisations. Some of us have experienced domestic abuse. Many of us have been on the receiving end of the misuse of power. This is a question which is massively important in our generation. This is a question that you could argue defines this city in the cultural moment right now. Who has power? How is power operating? What what are the structures of injustice? And Mary lived at a time where power was abused. And in her song of praise about who Jesus is, And what he's come to do, she addresses those questions of justice and she points us to Jesus. He will bring the rulers down from their thrones and exalt them of low degree. That Greek word ruler is dunastas, it just means power. In the ancient world, power was about kings on thrones. Today, power operates differently in our culture, but Jesus is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is the hope of humanity. The hope for all who've been abused or harmed by power misuse in our world. And the hope that those who follow him, that those who are shaped by the ethical discourse of the Magnificat, would change the world around us 
I love that slide at the beginning that you have up. May it be in San, in San Francisco, you know, as it is in heaven. May it be in our city that the kingdom of heaven is known and seen and felt at every level. Now, Mary points us to a God who can be trusted with power in a world where power harms and hurts so many of us. She says that we will not live forever subjugated to unjust power, that there is hope and that hope in Jesus actually frees us today. The Magnificat is a song of absolute, utter defiance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer a German pastor and theologian who was executed by the Nazis for his part on, in the plot on Hitler's life, was caught between loyalty to his country and a deep growing realisation that he needed to help resist the evil that had overtaken Germany. As a young pastor, he used to host university students in his home and answer their questions about the Christian faith offering Christian hospitality in something he called table talk. My grandfather, as a university student, attended some of those meetings in the Bonhoeffer house in the 1920s. Bonhoeffer did resist the power structures of Nazism. And this is what he said about Mary's Magnificat. He said, it is the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. Mary's song is a cry of hope and defiance and light and truth that is in tune with the heart of God that speaks to the power structures of our age. Anointing looks like reading the power discourses of this world and defiantly believing and proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the hope of humanity. He will bring down the rulers from their thrones. For anyone in this church who's been on the receiving end of power abuse, that is an agonizing and painful place to be. The promise of the gospel is... We will not live forever subjugated to unjust power. Jesus has come to rescue and deliver. So what does anointing look like in conclusion? Fulfillment of prophecy. Anointing is when we see and hear God's word and God brings it to pass in our lives and in our communities. And no one is excluded from that possibility by our gender or by our level of disadvantage on any socioeconomic measure. Anointing looks like understanding reality. It's not denial of reality. It's not a fantasy. It's not living with our head in some ethereal weirdo cloud. It's understanding reality and being prepared to pay a cost, serving Jesus in a way that is sometimes not easy. Being anointed is to be a witness, to have those vocal cords unlocked and to proclaim and speak of Jesus and point people to Jesus. And to be anointed is to under, understand the power discourses of your age and to defiantly 
speak against the injustice and to defiantly hold out the hope of the gospel.